Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Would you pray with me? I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Oh God, we're thirsty. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus and I found in him my star my son, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Lord, we bring you our darkness this morning. We confess our darkness, and we ask for your light, Lord. Lord, would you minister to us this teaching of yours that is so beautiful and powerful? And all God's people said, amen. Um, if you're visiting with this morning, we've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which for me at least has been really deeply meaningful in my life. And this one is about anxiety, and it's such a famous passage um, that Susie read. And there are so many different parts to anxiety. It's such a huge thing that affects us all. There's a mental health dimension to anxiety. Uh, I think there's a cultural dimension to anxiety right now. Um, I think anxiety is uniquely common in our culture and particularly amongst our younger generations. And this teaching is so intricate and beautiful. Uh, there's not really one way you can approach it. So I wanna tell two little stories this morning to begin to help us focus our attention on this passage. And they're both Jesus stories. The first one is a story about two sisters named Mary and Martha. And this is found in Luke chapter 10. Basically, Jesus enters a town, and these two sisters, Mary and Martha, have Jesus over to their house, and Jesus comes over and starts teaching. And uh, Mary is the sister who basically sits down at Jesus' feet, and she listens to him, and she opens up her heart to Jesus, and she's all there. Meanwhile, Martha is distracted. She's setting the table, she's serving, she's doing all the other stuff, and she's smoldering inside that Mary is not helping her out serving, well, because she's listening to Jesus. So you can imagine Martha's like clinking the dishes extra hard in the, you know, the kitchen to try to get Mary to hear like, can you not hear that I'm like working hard and you're choking? And then finally she snaps and says to Jesus, Jesus, please tell Mary to come help me out. You know, I'm like serving over here. And Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You're troubled about many things. But then he says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus was in her house. The kingdom was in her midst, and she missed it. She was distracted. Second story Jesus tells us about a great banquet. This is from Luke 14. He says one time this guy threw this massive party. Um, if you have been in our church uh, think of the Festival of Meats, all right? Uh, ladies, think of the fondue night you had. Uh, beautiful food, gorgeous candles, silverware, everything. And he invites all these people, 
And then one by one, he hears from the people that he's invited that they don't want to come. One person says, I just bought a new field. It's a new business venture. I just can't come right now. It's not, it's not in the cards for me. I wish I could. Another says, I just bought some oxen. Another person says, I'm married. I can't come. And so the master of the feast is left there with a banquet and nobody to eat it. And he says, none of the people I invited are going to taste this banquet. And he invites other people. When we hear that, we tend to think those excuses aren't real. So we tend to think that the person like receives the invitation text from the guy and is like talking with his wife, like, I don't want to go to this. What should I say? You know, all of you have been there. You're trying to get out of something and you're trying to think of what's a good excuse, you know, and you're like, let's tell them about the oxen. Like, that's a good, that's a good excuse, you know, like wink, wink. Um, but think about it. Thinking about it this week, I feel like these could be really good reasons. My business is crazy right now. It's just not in the cards. I can't come. I have so much. I really want to come to the feast, but my family's not into it. There's a lot going on at home. Like, it's just, thanks for the invite, but I, I can't. And if that's the case, who wants to be the first person to pick up the first stone? Amen? I get that. Yet even so, they missed it. They missed it. The meat was medium rare, right? The ice hadn't melted yet in the glass, and they missed it. The word used for anxious in the story in Mar Martha in Greek could be translated as worry, and it can carry the same double meaning as it does in English. So it can articulate a crushing anxiety. I'm worried about a doctor's appointment. I'm worried nobody likes me and my life is falling apart. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about America. It can also be used to talk about concern or care that is good. I'm worried about you, right? Do you see how those two stories are a battle of concerns? They're a battle of worries. Martha was worried about the dishes. Mary was worried about hearing Jesus. The people in the banquet were preoccupied. They were anxious about their work and family. They were not worried about missing the feast. And this, I think, is the core of what Jesus wants to teach through this story this morning. He's going to speak into our experience of anxiety. He knows we're anxious. He knows there are so many things that weigh on us. He wants to alleviate anxiety. He wants to free us from burdens. That is what Jesus does. That's his business. But more than anything, he wants to free us from anxiety so we can come and sit at the feast. so that we can realize he's in our midst and sit at his feet. You see, Jesus teaches that anxiety can keep you from laying hold of the kingdom as bad as any of like, the headlined vices can. Sex, money, all the things that we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Anxiety can keep you back as well. In the parable of the sower, do you know what the thorns are that choke the word of God? One of them is the deceitfulness of riches, which we talked about last week, which is interesting. He's pairing these. Guess what the other one is? the cares of the world. And the world translated care there is the same one that means anxiety or worry. So in this passage, Jesus wants to teach us how to worry about the right thing, which he says to Martha is the one thing necessary which will not be taken away. So we're going to read this passage and ask two questions. Number one, what are we not to worry about? Jesus really helps us there. And why? 
Number two, what should we be worrying about and why? Sound good? Flip with me to your gospel reading in your bulletin. What page is it on? Nine? Nailed it. After almost two years of having the gospel on the same page. Gosh, this feels good. Um, Okay, let's begin with what, what Jesus says not to worry about. The great refrain of this teaching is do not be anxious. He says it three times. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. Let's look at what he says starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing. First, Jesus says not to be anxious about the life and the body. And that sounds a little vague, but Jesus helpfully unpacks what he's talking about. When he says life, he follows it up by talking about what you're going to eat or drink. And in verse 26, we'll see he adds to this by talking about harvesting food and the seasons and the sweat of providing provision for you or your family. If you grew up on a farm, you know what this is all about. I did not grow up on a farm, so I don't get that as much, but there's a lot of things you can control in this world. You can work hard, you can put in the hours, you can try to be shrewd in your business dealings and your home affairs, but you cannot control the weather. And at the end of the day, the weather affects the harvest. So many great stories that have to do with this experience. Grapes of Wrath is my favorite by John Steinbeck about Oklahoma farmers working through the Dust Bowl and the toll that that took. I believe there's a dairy crisis right now in Wisconsin. Is that right? Anybody know about that? Maybe not. You can't control the weather. That's why all cult religions revolve around the harvest and the seasons. False religion is always an attempt to control the uncontrollable, and that affects us so deeply. If you didn't grow up on a farm, you get this emotion as well, though. This is what makes you ask questions like, what are we going to do if this happens? I can't control it, and it could, and it could crush me. What's going to happen then? Where's the money going to come from? How are we going to make it through this season of life? What if things beyond my control go south? Jesus also talks about the body. When he talks about the body, he uses the analogy of clothes. And there is a sense which this is also an essential of life, like food and drink and clothes. Um, And this is something that those of us in poverty do worry about. How am I going to clothe myself? How are my kids going to be clothed? But I think when Jesus talks about it here, there's also a dimension of vanity. This is the question when you're invited something, which is a different type of anxiety, when you say, what am I going to wear? You're not talking about, do I actually have clothes? You're thinking, what are the clothes I'm going to wear? I laughed this week. Uh, I was in middle school in the early 2000s and late 90s, and I laughed hearing somebody talk about how there was a caste system on clothing brands in middle school then. It was like the Abercrombie and Fitch kids, and then the American Eagle kids, and then like the Old Navy kids, and then, you know, whatever else came afterwards, which is ridiculous. And if you have no idea what those are, you, there was an equivalent brand in your day. It goes all the way back to Jesus. And as funny as that is, it goes beyond middle school, and it's a real source of anxiety. It's funny to laugh at, uh, but if people saw it, us in private, it wouldn't be as funny. We worry about what we wear. We worry about what our life looks like to other people, what we have, what we don't have. Anybody know the Dr. Seuss story, The Sneetches, where the Sneetches have stars on Mars? Uh, if you don't know about it, it's a beautiful story about prejudice, but I think it's also about anxiety of worrying about what you're wearing. Basically, there are these 
animals, some of them have stars, some of them don't, and they freak out depending on what's in vogue, wanting a star or not a star. And Sylvester McMonkey McBean is this super wise guy that just exploits their vanity and their anxiety, and he gets rich off of it, and then he leaves town. So that's what Jesus opens the teaching with, the life in the body. The other thing he clearly warns us not to worry about is the future. And Jesus specifically mentions worrying about trouble in the future. So look at verse uh, 34 with me. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So he's assuming there's some trouble. This is the anxiety of what could happen. This is the great hanging, what if? What if this happens in our family? What if these relationships break apart? What if this happens to our kids? What if our kids do this? What if this happens at my job? What if this happens in America? Many people are asking that this year, right? What if this happens at our church community? What if I don't succeed at this? What if I'm a failure? And you know, anxiety has this way of taking hypothetical situations in the future and making them a crushing reality in the present. A songwriter named Jason Isbell puts it like this. He has a song called Anxiety. And he says, anxiety, how, how, how do you always get the best of me? I'm out here living in a fantasy and I can't enjoy a thing. Wife and child still sleeping deep enough to dream. And oh, I'm a lucky man today, but so afraid that time will take it all from me. It's the weight of the world, but it's nothing at all. Anxiety. Even though those things are hypothetical, they bring us anxiety because, like the harvest, you cannot control the future. We look into the future. We don't know if we'll be taken care of or provided for or seen or loved, and we can flood over us with anxiety. Jesus says not to be anxious about those things. Uh, and thankfully, this is not the end of his teaching, just saying, don't be anxious about this. Like, has anybody ever told you to quit worrying about something that you're really worried about? Does that work? No, it makes it worse. Or when you're stressed out, somebody's saying, chill out. Like, when has that ever helped? Luckily, Jesus sits down with us in our anxiety, and he helps us work through it. So why? Two main reasons. Look at verse 27 first. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his or her span of life. Basically, he says, with blessed, holy practicality, worrying about stuff you can't control doesn't change anything. It's not going to prolong your life. It's not going to change the weather or the harvest or the stock market or politics or your health. It's the first reason why Jesus says just, he's just helping us. Worrying doesn't do any good, but he goes beyond that. The second and major reason Jesus gives is that even though you aren't in control, your heavenly Father is in control. And this is where Jesus takes us on his famous nature walk field trip, um, which I wish we could go outside now, even though there's not a lilies, not a lot of lilies in March in Wisconsin, but hey, maybe soon. Uh, this is the main thing. So look at, look at verse 26. This is all about the provision in the heart of the Father. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
the picture you should have in your mind is being a child in your house and watching your dad go outside and feed birds in a bird feeder. Your father's not the father of the birds. He's your dad, and yet he's feeding the birds. He cares for them. He loves them. Jesus is saying, if your heavenly father feeds the birds, will he not feed you? Will he not remember his own children? The honey and the comb of that analogy is that even though you're not in control, someone is in control and he's good and he's asked you to call him father. He controls the future. He controls the harvest. He controls everything. That Job reading that Ian read, so powerful. Has the reign a father? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's not us, but God is in control. And this is the father who sent the son who willingly suffered anguish and torment and death in your place in order to set you free and who gave you the Holy Spirit who adopted you and brought you into fellowship with God. If he did all that, how is he going to forget you? Will he not provide for you? This does not mean you won't be asked to walk through hard times. I think that's the, the question underlying this text in some ways is, well, what about times when I do suffer? Jesus promises that we'll have hard times. This is not a promise for comfort. It's a promise for provision, regardless of circumstance. Let me say that again. This is not a promise for comfort. It's a promise that he sees you and will provide for you, no matter the, no matter the situation. Think about it. Jesus himself was considering the lilies and the birds on his way to the cross. But he trusted the Father. He trusted that though he would suffer, he would be exalted. God provided for Jesus at every stage of his life, in the wilderness, in his public ministry, even to death. And this teaching from Jesus is ultimately vindicated by the empty grave. God did see. He did provide. He did not abandon him to death. So don't think you're not seen or that you won't be provided for. Don't think the world is out of control. He takes care of the birds. Are you not more value to the Father than they are? Amen? Now let's look at verse 28, what he says about lilies. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Jesus does the same thing with clothes. He says, now look at these flowers. He's asking you to think about it. Consider these flowers. Look how beautiful they are. Think about how transient they are. They, they sit on a vase in your, your table in your dining room for like a week. And yet look at the detail God gives them. Look at this orchid. Look how insane it is. If your father does this for the grass of the field, which is so transient, will he not remember you into whom he has put eternity, his image bearer? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, as logicians put it. So finally, verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What shall we drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. 
um, the refrain from that first part of Matthew chapter 6, where it's all about the se- going in the secret place with the Father, the, ref- the refrain is your Father sees. I think the refrain here could be your Father knows. We talked a lot about in the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus is drawing this distinction between the Jesus way and Jesus people and religious hypocrisy and also paganism. And here Jesus teaches us that the way Christians react to the worries of the world should utterly shock those around us. People should see us not freaking about stuff and think, how is that possible? How are you calm right now? Why are you not freaking out? And our response should be, oh, I have a heavenly father. He knows. Marissa used to be a uh, event planner, and one time she was doing this event in a different city and uh, was kind of helping this man who was really godly and was going to speak at it, like with his flights and everything, and she said, you've got this layover, it's kind of short, um, and you'll have like an hour to get from plane to plane. I hope that's not stressful, because like she had worked with other people before who freaked out about their itinerary. And he says, oh no, I don't believe in stress. And she was shocked, and then she came home and told me about it, and I don't even really know this guy well. And I was like, he doesn't believe in stress, you know? And again, I wasn't even a part of the conversation, but I was like, like, I believe in stress. Like, what if everybody around him believes in stress? It just got to me for some reason. For like a year, I was just angry, like, how dare he say he doesn't believe in stress? Like, I'm stressed all the time. But I think he, this man, he just got it. It's a, it is a faith issue. Did you see how he says, oh, you have little faith? Talking about the lilies. Do you know that in the, the calming of the storm, they're on the boat, if you're familiar with the story, and it's going insane. And they're freaking out. You know what Jesus is doing during the storm? He's taking a nap. And they wake him up and he says, where's your faith? He's like, where'd it go? Did you lose it? And then he whew, calms the storm. Psalm 112 says this, for the righteous will never be moved. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Don't you love when Jesus is standing before Pilate, awaiting utter anguish and agony that you and I could never imagine, and Pilate is shocked. He's not freaking out. Pilate's like, don't you know I have the authority to do all this stuff? And Jesus just is so cool. Jesus is calling us to be anxious, not to be anxious about our life and our body and our future because worrying accomplishes nothing and our heavenly Father is in control. He knows us. He will provide for us. He will not allow us to be abandoned. Yet even so, Jesus' logic gets better because he doesn't just teach us to say no to one kind of anxiety. He teaches us to replace our anxiety with a concern about the right thing. He teaches us what to worry about and why. So now let's look at this. Look at verse 31 again with me really quick. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That's the no. Don't worry about those things. And here's the, here's the positive, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If I can take some extreme liberties and paraphrase this, here's what I think Jesus is saying. While everyone else is freaking out about the future and their work and politics and their clothes and their bank account, 
I want you to be freaking out about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Martha, you're so anxious. Mary's chosen the good thing. Come and sit at my feet. Guys, quit letting the uncontrollable anxieties of your job and your family control you. The food is hot. There's a place at the table. Come and sit down. Enjoy the feast. Jesus tells us to worry about his kingdom and his righteousness. So this is worrying about your personal sanctification, your intimacy with the Father, his reward, his treasure, like he's already talked about in this chapter. Worrying about the mission of God, reconciling all people to himself. Worrying about preaching good news to the poor, spreading the justice of God like perfume throughout our city. That, Jesus says, is worth your attention. Why? Well, first of all, like he says, because all the other stuff will be added to you if you worry about that first. In other words, be concerned about the kingdom and let God do his job. He'll bless you. He won't leave you as orphans. One of you reminded me last week of the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Which is exactly what happens to King Solomon. Do you remember? God says, what do you want? And King Solomon says, I want, to, I want wisdom so I can lead well, lead your people well. And God says, amazing. Because you didn't ask for all the selfish stuff, you'll get that too. So this doesn't mean working hard or caring about things on earth is bad. Farming is still a good thing. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about the harvest. I'll just sow the corn myself. Uh, remember in Proverbs, the ant, he's like, look at the ant. He works really hard. You should do that too. This is a clear matter of priority. You put first the kingdom. You prioritize the one thing necessary. You can get to the other stuff later. There are two different ways to farm. Two different people can farm the same way, and one can be filled with anxiety and one with trust in the Lord. If I may, there are two different ways to go to the ballot box. There are two different ways to work in your job. Jesus wants to help us seek first the kingdom. So that's one reason. The other reason is this. You can't, you can't control the other stuff, but you can control your decision to ask for more of the Spirit and lay hold of the kingdom of heaven. You cannot control the weather or your health or America or your children or your spouse or traffic, but you can control your choices, whether or not you seek the kingdom. And it is that which is eternal for which you will be held accountable. It is that which will pay dividends both in this life and the next. I had a friend I worked with once who loved to work, and he worked with me at night after he left his other more higher paying job in the day, and he didn't need the money, he just loved to be in the office, and honestly, I think away from home. And he had a daughter, and he would always tell me about how she always wanted to see him and was bummed that she didn't get more time with him, and he would say things like, well, um, she just doesn't understand she has all the nice shoes because I work, you know, it's just maybe one day she'll get it. And I tried to say to him very gently, Dude, I don't know your daughter, but my hunch is she cares more about you than her nice shoes. This got me this week. Jesus did not care how dirty Martha's house was. Ow. Ow. The man who threw the banquet did not care how many oxen were just purchased. He wants you 
There's a placemat for you. He's polished the silver himself. Jesus is preparing a room in his father's house. He's inviting you to close your laptop, shut off your phone, sit down with him. Your house might not be as clean. That's an issue for me. I love cleanliness and order. This is a huge frontal attack Jesus is making on my clean anxiety. Marissa's like, hey, huh? Amen. <laughs> you might not make as much money. You might wear clothes that are out of style. For some that you care more about that than others. You might miss a flight like that guy. Oh, I don't, I don't believe in stress. I can't control that. You might be late to something, but who cares? Amen? Who cares? You will not miss the one thing that cannot be taken away from you. You will not miss the feast. And you don't want to miss the feast. You don't want to miss the feast. Um, one of the things I love about our bishop and his wife, they're just amazing people, but uh, when I started working with Bishop Stewart and his wife, Catherine, I was shocked. There was a season where, you know, in our day and age with TV shows, it's kind of like you have to know about it to be culturally conversant, like whatever the popular show is. And there was a time where we were at a lunch table with a bunch of people, and there was a really popular show, and everybody was talking about it. He was like, oh, I have no idea what that is. And where I was from in my old job, that would have been like, you've never seen XYZ? Like, oh my gosh, you know? And he's just like, no, I don't know what that is. I remember during March Madness, which is always in Lent and Holy Week, March Madness. This is my second sermon I've talked about March Madness. It's, it's basically a really big basketball tournament, and a lot of people really care about it. And I love March Madness, and he was like, oh, I love it, but I haven't watched March Madness in like 15 years. There's always been more stuff I've been able to do, and it's Holy Week and Lent, and I was just shocked by how he was just not worried about it. But Bishop Stewart and Catherine, they feast, and you can see the crumbs on their shoulders from what they've been eating. They've got wine stains down their chin, because I know you've been sinking your teeth into the good thing. That really helped me. We need people around us who remind us, your house can be messy. Don't miss the one thing that's necessary. Two quick application points and then we're done. First of all, God gave us a tool to help us quit worrying about the wrong thing and help us to worry about the right thing. Do you know what it is? The Sabbath. It's a command and it is built into creation. And I would say, and the Bible would say, built into your DNA. On the Sabbath, God tells us to stop. And when we stop, it literally forces you to pry open your ninja vice grip on all the things that you think you can, can control, but you cannot. It forces you to quit and then remember, my father's in control. So if you want something really practical, just help to free you from the anxieties of the future and life and body. I want to challenge you to do something crazy and just start practicing the Sabbath. Pick a day where you're not in control. And whenever you feel that tendency to go, <laughs> remind yourself, God is in control, I am not. Here's a quick diagnostic. This one also hurt me this week. If you can't fully stop for one day and turn off your phone and leave your work and let the house get messy without the world falling apart, you're Martha. And I don't say that lightly. It takes one to know one. And if I can speak to parents for a second, your kids will never learn this if you don't learn it first. 
they have to see you knowing God as a provider. Finally, if you're here and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, and maybe you hear this and you're thinking, this sounds way too good to be true because I live and breathe on worry. If you hear me talking about the Father and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, listen to this from Jesus. He says this a couple chapters later in this gospel. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again so that you could be reintroduced to your heavenly Father, the one who tends the birds and clothes the lilies of the field, the one who's invited you to the feast, and the only one who can bring you that true rest for your souls. And I want to challenge you, if you're feeling that this morning and you want to meet your heavenly Father, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I'll be around here somewhere. And also, during communion, we're going to have four prayer ministers in the back. They're trained, and they would love to pray for you confidentially. And I would encourage you to go up to one of them and say, I'm filled with anxiety. I want the, the lightness. I want that rest for my soul that Jesus is talking about. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these will be added to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.